You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, welcome everyone to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today we're going to talk about Colossians. This book was important to me during my various transitions of faith, but it's also a little frustrating. So we're going to talk about a few of my frustrations with the book which we'll get into in a bit. Uh, Colossians has some some controversial sections in it, primarily here in chapter 3, where it, it gives some rules that we might find unacceptable today, like, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. Slaves, obey your masters in everything. I'm probably not going to solve all these problems today, but I want to talk about them nonetheless. I want to talk about some of the uh, the ways that I've I've thought through these, and hopefully to make this a little bit more compelling just to understand the complexities of biblical interpretation and why being overly simplistic isn't really that helpful. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. But let me give a little background first. Hopefully this won't be too boring. I'm going to be using the word Paul as though Paul wrote Colossians. There's some debate among scholars as to whether Paul wrote Colossians or not. Some of the reasons for this is just the language that's used. So there's, you know, some words, I think there's 48 words not found in any other of Paul's letters found in Colossians. So some say, well, that means uh, he probably didn't write it because we tend to use the same words when we write and when we speak. And there's 33 words that uh, aren't anywhere in the New Testament that are in Colossians, and the fancy word for that is hapax legomena. So it's a word that only occurs once. But people who would be pro-Paul writing this would say, well, there's lots of reasons for that. You know, you could be accounted for by the fact that Paul learns new words and new things over time. He's using a different secretary, which would have been very common. So uh, here in Colossians, we see this in chapter 4, I think, verse 18, where Paul ends the letter saying, I, uh, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, this greeting, meaning most of the rest wasn't written by Paul, but maybe Timothy uh, was his secretary. And there's a a fancy word for that, too, called amanuensis. So if you ever hear that, that's a a fancy word for secretary who wrote these things down. And uh, yeah, so all that to say, I'm going to use Paul throughout because it's easier. But just so you know, there's some some debate on that. So uh, Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it to a church in Colossae, uh, or Colossae, depending on how you want to pronounce it. doesn't really matter to me. So that's a little background. He's writing this letter to a church in Colossae. And yeah, that's enough background, because I want to get into the the heart of some of the things that I want to talk about, which are, are really two things that frustrate me here about Paul and about this book. And my frustration comes primarily because I, I actually really like this book. So the, the first is the confusing moral rules that Paul sets up 
in Colossians. So Paul is clearly writing a little background here on the content of the book. He's writing this letter, at least in part, to counter a sect that had developed in Colossae. He doesn't spell it out explicitly, which is one of my frustrations with Paul. Like, just stop being passive-aggressive and call these guys out already. But anyway, we can see for sure in chapter 2 some of these things that were being taught in the church that Paul wasn't a fan of. So there, I, I have them categorized here, but there are rituals. So he talks about in chapter 2 these festivals, new moon celebrations, and Sabbaths that this uh, sect was asking people to follow. And then there's this uh, asceticism, uh, talking about self-abasement. So there were these things that you were supposed to do to deprive yourself so that you could be more holy or or whatever the goal was here in this sect. And then there's mystical knowledge. It talks about visions and worship of angels. This is all in chapter 2, verses 16 and, and following, if you wanted to read later. So there's these rituals that the sect was saying you needed to follow, having these festivals, celebrations, Sabbaths. There was an asceticism, and there was this mystical knowledge that to be truly spiritual, you needed to have these visions, and they, they worship uh, angels, apparently. His point, of course, is that all of this has no moral significance. This is just posturing. And, and I'm all about that, and that was one of the things that I really appreciated about the book, especially growing up as I deconstructed all the rules that were passed down to me by the, the churches that I grew up in, you know, they seem to care so much about the appearance of wisdom, the appearance of doing the right things, and they had all these silly rules in place that didn't actually help me. I've learned to live a moral life, it just made me anxious and fearful and, and full of guilt, and growing up charismatic. So, my Southern Baptist roots had a lot of these kind of silly, seemingly moralistic rules that didn't seem to make any sense to me. And then my charismatic side had this kind of secret knowledge aspect of it too, that uh, you know there were certain ways of being that were would have been kind of code words or code behaviors for your kind of in and your you're more spiritual if you can speak in tongues or you can do these things. So I always appreciated Paul going after these different understandings of what makes someone spiritual and good, and uh, and so I appreciated that that list. This was very liberating for me. But then. Paul replaces all those rules. So he says, don't do those things, kind of the aesthetic and all those things. Don't do that. He replaces what we might call the superficial, sanctimonious rules with what he thinks are the real problem. And he gets to these in verses 5 to 9 in chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to read this list here. So he says, he kind of goes through all the, don't do all those things. Put to death, though, he says, therefore... Whatever in you is earthly. And he has these lists. Fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. Don't live that life. But now you must get rid of all such things. And then he has another list. Anger wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. So, he kind of goes against and saying, you know, you're following the wrong, there are rules here, you're just following the wrong ones, let me give you the right ones. So, the, the frustration here for me 
is uh, it's one, I, I don't like following rules, so I liked getting rid of the other rules, but I don't necessarily like replacing them with other rules. I mean, come on. But beyond that, Paul's language here isn't always clear. And so we want to take a look at that. You know, we have to take into consideration Paul's social understanding. So his grammar isn't really clear, but also understanding that maybe the words he's using don't mean the same thing in our context that they would have meant in his context. And this is where Bible interpretation can get complicated. And some people think that that uh, folks like me like to overcomplicate it, but I think it just is complicated. We're not trying to overcomplicate, we're trying to understand the complexity of just what's here in the text and and how to make meaning out of something that was written so long ago in a different world, but uses words that confusingly we might use, but have a different meaning and a different understanding. So, to, to do this, let's go back and look at, at these lists that Paul has. First, he calls out these five things, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And, and here I'm using the NRSV translation. And, and he summarizes that by ending with the phrase, you know, which is uh, idolatry, um, which we get the word, I mean, in, in Greek, it's actually idololatria, which is basically idolatry. So, why characterize greed or, or any of these as idolatry? Uh, we see this again in, in Ephesians chapter 5, which, by the way, there's a lot of parallel between Ephesians and Colossians. Very similar content um, and structure in those. A guy named Brian Rosner actually wrote a whole book on this called Greed as Idolatry. So, there's been a lot of theories throughout the church on why we'd call greed idolatry. I don't want to get into that, but it's not hard to see, actually, though, the jump from greed to idolatry. If you think of you know all the times in the Bible it warns against trusting in material things for security rather than God. So, you're essentially replacing a desire for money as a means of security uh, over a desire for God to provide that security. So, you're replacing God. That's with with a desire for more stuff. Uh, so, that's, you know, the connection between greed and, and idolatry. But the, secondly, though, I, not to get into the weeds there, the English in this list is a little unhelpful because if you look in the Greek and you, you kind of understand how this words, these words would have been used, they're really referring to something that goes to a corrupt desire. And this is really important when it comes to, say, things like sexual ethics, we can't read the word fornication and just think Paul is saying, don't have sex unless you're married. That's overly simplistic. The word fornication in this, the first word in the list, the Greek is, you know, porneia. And that doesn't just refer to not having sex until you're married. It's a broader term that refers to any sexual act that would have been deemed illicit or unnatural. So, unnatural is important because of the social order of things, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, that would have been uh, homosexuality, uh, you know, having having sex with someone of the same sex, bestiality, adultery, sex with a relative, sex with a divorced person. So, anything that was kind of deemed uh, outside the bounds. And it's important to talk about outside the bounds because desire was a really important part of Paul's world in understanding sexual ethics, that it was often the thought that you have illicit sex when you have an overproduction of corrupt desire. And that's when you sort of go outside the bounds of the natural sexual world. So, you know, an overly simplistic reading of this list and what Paul is saying now we need to do would mean that anyone who marries a divorced person and has sex with them 
is being disobedient and should get ready for the wrath of God. So, anyone who wants to read this uh, kind of one-to-one correspondence and whatever whatever we mean by the words now, we just kind of re-project those onto Paul and then bring them back up to our world. We, if we want to be uh, what I would call a little anachronistic in that way, and we have to be willing to say that whoever marries a divorced person is being disobedient. The wrath of God is coming upon you. But I don't think that's that's helpful, and, and frankly, we, we don't do that most of the time, and that's usually certain conservative sects will keep that wooden or overly simplistic reading and eventually lose touch with culture, basically. But I'm more interested in trying to understand why Paul thought this list was important. What ties all these things together? It's not a random list of things. And this list represents an ancient list, first of all, of, of corrupt desires. So, if, if we looked at the Greek and, and we toyed with the translation, I might, I might translate it as, instead of those fornication and impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, I might say sex with a corrupted desire, an overly lustful or luxurious life, depraved passions, bad cravings, and this corrupt desire to replace God with material wealth for security. So, it's, it's not necessarily about the acts. It's about the heart. It's about the desire. So, this, this list, what ties them all together is a lot of language about depravity, bad, bad will, impurity, or this lustful living. So, it's about the desire. So, when I'm thinking about this list today, and I'm trying to interpret, what does it mean for us to put to death fornication, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed? I might not include things like committed same-sex relationships or marrying a divorced person. I wouldn't maybe put that in the list of porneia or fornication today, because I've come to understand that those relationships in themselves don't represent that corrupt desire that, that Paul would have had in mind when he's creating this. Likely, I don't know what Paul had in mind, but this is that, that difficult mining work of interpretation. So, now, uh, I, I wouldn't put those things in there. They don't represent a corrupt desire in the way I understand the world now. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. 
A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Now, now some may have that. Some committed same-sex relationships or marriages from people who've been divorced may have corrupt desires, just like though heterosexual relationships might, and couples who haven't been divorced before might have those corrupt desires. So, I'm interested in those in those heart things, and, and when we see the context, we can maybe look behind the, the list and say, well, in Paul's time, that list did represent this other thing, but I'm more interested in this other thing. And that's not simple. And again, it's not airtight and it's not certain. I don't know if that's what Paul meant, but I just have to do the hard work of figuring out how we bring this to today. And and if we broaden the context here, we also have to put this first list of fornication and, and so on in comparison to the second list that Paul gives, since Paul seems to be relating them. So, he gives this list and he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient, but now you must get rid of all such things. And then he has this other list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language. Okay? Malice is kind of ill will or desire to injure someone. So, Paul seems to be relating these. And so, the, the, the important thing for me in this second list is that these are relational terms. You can't really have any of these vices outside of a relationship with another human being. So, this is anger or wrath or desire to injure, slander, abusive language, like who are you abusing? It, it, there's a relational aspect to this. So, one of the reasons Paul seems to be saying that those other sanctimonious, superficial rules aren't helpful is that I don't address relationships. Or, to, to bring Jesus into this, they don't help you love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the most important thing we're looking at. And Paul actually says this. So, this is strengthened with the last rule, don't lie to one another. So, that's like very explicit, and you'll find truthfulness in the Bible is most explicitly linked to not lying to another human being. It's a very relational term, so truth isn't this abstract thing. It's very practical. It's don't lie to other people. And then this relational context of this whole thing, so I think we have to put this whole thing in the context of relationship, is more explicit when he switches over from what not to do. So, he has these two lists the fornication list, and the anger list. and he. But then he switches into what to do in verses 11 to 15, which is all explicitly relational. He says, you know, in there is no longer Greek or Jew, 
There's no longer circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no longer slave and free. And then he says, uh, clothe yourselves with, and this is the third list, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then he goes on and gives a little more detail. Bear with one another, forgive each other, and then above all, clothe yourselves with love. So love sort of trumps everything. And that, that's great. I, I think that's an, an excellent way of, of thinking about these things. Hey, everyone. My name is Ryan Morrison from Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of a group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who work really hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. So a big thanks to Brock Beasley, Nolan Archer, Angela Smith, Denise Howard, Katie Komen, Book Notes, A. Todd Rivetti, and Roseanne Hennessy. The Bible for Normal People could not happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. So these are very relational pieces, and, and relationships change, and the social context of those relationships change. And, and so we have to sort of understand that when we're interpreting this for today, uh, we have to, and I know it's frustrating, and this brings me back to my frustration with Paul, which is really just a frustration with the Bible, is we, we have to do the hard work. We can't get out of it. I wish we could. I wish it was easier, but it's not. And so we have to build those muscles and do the hard work of, as a community, figuring out, okay, what was the intent here of what Paul was saying, and how do we be faithful to that? Not how do we woodenly or simplistically just bring it over, but how do we be faithful to really what the heart of this is? So, he ends with love, bearing with one another. There's no longer slave or free. Oh, man, that's inspiring. But that brings me to the thing that frustrates me most about Colossians, the rules for Christian households. He comes off this inspiring section about freedom, equality, and love, and blah, 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 and goes right into this. The very next verse, uh, wives, be subject to your husbands. What the hell, Paul? So, first, we talked about the confusing moral rules that Paul sets up, kind of worked our way through those. But what about these confusing social rules that Paul sets up? How do we get ourselves out of this one? So that, that's that, you know, the first one was the moral rules. The second thing that frustrates me is these confusing social rules that Paul sets up. Now, the first thing to mention is that we find a very similar passage in Ephesians. And this likely reflects a common way of talking about the social rules that are set up in, in Roman society. Uh, and and a, the fancy word for this is the, the Haus de Feln which is just a German word, but the Hostafeln are this household codes the, that lay out, uh, as we see here in Colossians and again in Ephesians, I think, chapter 5, these different societal roles and what's expected of each person in those roles. 
And again, we, we got to go back to the social context. So you guys are probably tired of hearing me and throughout this entire podcast talk about the social context, but it's so critical because Paul's theology uses the social context given to him in the broader culture. He, he, we, we are, as humans are not allowed to, are unable to just make up our context out of thin air. We all have to use the language that's dominant in our culture, and we all have to use the metaphors that are dominant in our culture, the understanding of other human beings that are in our culture, and there's nothing we can do about that. But if we can recognize it, then we can understand that we have to change the meaning of things if our social context is different. So he's, you know, he's using the social context given to him in his broader Roman, at the time, dominated culture, and he's trying to figure out what it means to live in light of Jesus. How does Jesus change these things? But the only tools he has available would be the culture that he lives in. And in his culture, it was a given fact that certain types of people are ordained to certain roles in a society. Not, not only was this a fact, but it was actually a good thing. It reflected the order that God had ordained. It showed that God was in control and was keeping things in order. And, and this is important because you have to understand in the ancient world, nature was still a viable and incredibly potent threat. And so we see this even in the Bible itself, prior to Roman culture influencing the idea that God is a God of order. And so, having everything in its place, we see this as part of the more enlightened and sophisticated thinking in every ancient culture. The Greeks were creating their own way of ordering things and helping to make sense of things. And the Jewish people were doing the same, and the Romans in their own way would have been doing that, and and the Babylonians, and through these law codes, and through uh, their trying to philosophy and understanding how the world works, they order is what brings security and safety to a society and culture, especially in the ancient world, when there's so many threats uh, for survival. So, this was a good thing. It reflected the order that God had ordained. It showed that God was in control and was keeping things in order. You know, Paul is then working with this concept of creation, which saw in everything the hand of the Creator. So, the God as Creator. And this is kind of the basis for why we would accept these social structures. It's kind of a natural outgrowth of creation as an orderly process. So, uh, this is certainly in the background of the the context that Paul was writing these things in. We see this in Colossians 1 uh, as well. So, it's not only just in the broader context, but the whole book of Colossians starts with really setting up Christ as this authority and really kind of setting up that social order or hierarchy with now Christ in top of that. So, he doesn't, in this book, he doesn't outright deconstruct that social order. He just replaces the kind of human elements with a divine element and put a, puts Christ up there. 
this there is an order and Christ sits on top of it. Now, now that's going to create some problems. That's going to create some tensions. What does it mean if Christ is sitting atop of this hierarchy? And uh, what does it mean to have a revolutionary sitting on top of a, a politically hierarchical structure? And, and things might get a little dicey. And we, that's a good thing. But it does create this tension and it creates this ambiguity that a lot of us don't like. Uh, part of our frustration with Paul. So, just because, though, that and that tension I'm talking about means that just because there's an acceptance of the social structure doesn't mean that Paul isn't doing some work to transform it. There's, And this is that tension. There's something that's happening in Colossians where he's trying to reach, it seems like, towards something something new. So, I'm going to look at three parts where, where Paul seems to be in tension with himself, or at least the language is in tension. So, it, first is this the phrase, in the Lord. So, Paul is trying to figure out how Jesus fits into all this. So, in his rules for Christian households, he starts to add this thing, like, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly as unto the Lord or fearing the Lord. And do this as done for the Lord, not for your master. So, there is now creeping in this in the Lord language. And we see this again in in Ephesians 5 where Paul is saying that Christ is the example, meaning while wives need to submit to their husbands out of respect for this divinely created order, husbands mutually need to submit to their wives out of respect for Jesus' example of what it means to be the head that he came not to be served, but to serve. So, this example of Jesus, once you put Jesus in that top spot, this stuff starts to get a little tricky. And we see that again in Colossians 1, right? Christ is the ultimate authority. And Paul, in, in chapter 1, Christ is the ultimate authority. And now, Paul's still like wrestling with what that means if Christ is the example and the authority within this created order of things. And so, we see this, uh, this wrestling with Paul. We see it, so first in this language of in the Lord, he's, he's really wrestling. And two, the kind of the eschatology, the, the, the moral imagination. So, the, the real contention is almost, it, it can feel like a flat-out contradiction here, is in between chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul says, there is no longer slave or free right? And he has this longer list. There's no Greek or Jew or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So, there's no slave or free, and yet right after that, he's got some rules for slaves and masters. So, if there's no slave and free, how come we're still following these rules between slaves and masters? That seems like a contradiction for Paul to be saying both of those things. But again, if we look at the context of chapter 3, verse 11, we see that it's likely that Paul is using his moral imagination. It's, 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 apocalyptic. He's, he's reaching for a time when. So, just reading those two verses again, which is the third point here, is having clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And in that renewal, there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. 
how is it that there is no longer slave and free, yet Paul is telling slaves to obey their masters? We find, I think, uh, this would be, again, I, I don't know. This, this is a suggestion. I think we find Paul wrestling through the already and the not yet. So that's a phrase we, we use a lot in, when we're looking at the New Testament. There's a sense in which the kingdom is already here, and there's a sense in which it is not yet here. And, and there's a lot of uh, confusion, I think, even in the New Testament about what parts are already here, what parts are not yet here. And this comes back to, two. we have to remember in the context of the New Testament, people were expecting the imminent return of Jesus. So, the earlier writings was saying things like, well, don't worry about getting married or anything like that. Jesus is coming back, like, literally any day. And then as the years passed, that began to say, well, maybe Jesus isn't coming back any day, maybe any year or maybe any decade here. And, and so, we have to start kind of thinking more long-term about what it means to live in light of uh, the, the initial resurrection of Jesus as a people and not be thinking so imminently that uh, these things will happen just yet. So, this is squarely where, where Paul finds himself, and uh, so he's wrestling with the already and the not yet, kind of wrestling with what everybody knows and expects from society, and yet having his own moral imagination of, well, I, I think in, in light of Jesus, this is where we need to go. And, and so, there are three important words in, in chapter 3, verse 11, for me here, that is, in that renewal. So I kind of think of this as like Paul's, I have a dream speech. But he just, he can't seem to climb that mountain quite yet. He's, he's still part of that culture, that social order. And so, he, he hasn't kind of grasped that. He has a vision for it, but he hasn't kind of grasped it yet. But this, all of this is, is why it can be dangerous to think we can just simplistically lift Paul's words out of his ancient Roman context and plop them right into the 21st century. He's limited by his social context, the language he uses, the concepts he has. So I imagine if he, if he saw anyone doing that today, this would be my assumption. He he would smack us upside the head. He would say, you know, why why are you why are you doing that? We were we were reaching, we were we were reaching for freedom and equality, but we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the language at our disposal. But you do, so, so don't go backward. Sheesh, like we got to move forward in our moral imagination. We need to be creating new concepts and not just trying to discover what was really going on there, but, but we have to pick up on uh, that, that Paul is pushing, that Jesus and the, the, the climate or the, the impulse or the force of what Jesus is doing is pushing against what would have been available to people. And, and so, we have to do the hard work of kind of picking up those tools and moving them forward. And so, we, yeah, we may have something similar today, that, we, that we're always wrestling between the already and the not yet, that we have to name the reality, the household codes, and we have to name where we are, but we can't lose sight of that vision for a world where there is no longer inequality and enslavement in, in all their various forms. So, those are some ways in which I'm, I'm frustrated by, by Paul, but I think if we begin to allow Paul to be Paul, and see what Paul was up against, what Paul was doing, and respect Paul for, for the, the way he's creating new concepts here in the New Testament. And we can take that mantle up, and we can move that forward in how we interpret the Bible, and we can use it um, as a tool 
and and allow it to be what it is and, and see that Paul himself is wrestling in these books and figuring all of this stuff out. It gives us permission to also not have it all figured out and to try to keep figuring it out together in community. But also it keeps us from, I think, having this dangerous one-to-one overly simplistic correspondence of how to interpret the Bible. So I hope this has been a helpful time. Hopefully you can read Colossians with a a new lens as you uh, pick it up the next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. We would encourage you to continue to, to connect with us online. We'd love to have these conversations. We'd love to know where we where you feel like we've gotten it right, where you feel like we've gotten it wrong. It's all part of the conversation. It's all part of Grist for the Mill. It's all part of the journey. So if you uh, would like to, you can hop on uh, thebiblefornormalpeople.com. We have articles there. Or go to patreon.com, front slash thebiblefornormalpeople. Join our Slack group. Um, where you can continue to have conversations like this with uh, hundreds of uh, other people who are in a similar place on the journey. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.